Welcome to this bonus interview as part of the special series on running for public office. I'm your host of Rethinking, Alex Torpy, and in today's interview and discussion, I speak with Merrill Gordon. Merrill is not just one of only a few thousand other alum of Hampshire College, but she first joined the city council in Cleveland, Ohio in 1997 when she was only 27 years old. She served two terms on the city council and has had a long career in and around government and most recently served as Cleveland's director of public health. In this conversation, Merrill and I discuss a wide range of topics from the challenge of women, young people and underrepresented groups to run for office, why independence and self-determination in politics is so important, the consequences of reactive versus proactive governing, what issues she worked on in the city council, and why local government is such an exciting place to make change, and quite a bit more. Check out the conversation, and don't forget to like and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening or watching this. Enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of Rethinking with Alex Torpy. Um, really excited to be here with Merrill Gordon um, from Cleveland. Uh, Merrill, thanks so much for joining and uh, having this conversation. Happy to be here. So let's, uh, let's dive right into it. Um, you ran for city council in Cleveland um, originally in, uh, in 1997, um, and you were um, 27 years old at the time. Um, pretty young to jump into things in such a large city. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you were up to um, back then and what made you be interested in running for office. Well, thanks, Alex. <laughs> um, um, sort of dusting off the cobwebs of that <laughs> time in my life. Um, yeah, so I was actually... Um, Prior to that, um, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do, um, if I wanted to go to law school, what kind of um, career I really wanted to have. And um, I ended up working in a law firm where um, I ended up meeting an individual who was on city council in Cleveland and sort of serendipity of, of an actual day um, in our lives where I decided to quit that job. And um, he had an assistant who had quit that morning. And we had this really kind of funny interaction at the front desk. And he said, well, are you, if you're interested, what, let's have a conversation about this. And um um, eventually, he brought me in the next Monday, and um, I started working as his assistant. Um, and three years later, he ran for another office, um, so vacated his spot. Um, and we interviewed a whole bunch of people to fill it. And so he sort of turned to me and said, I think you're the person to do it. I mean, you know this job. You've been working as the assistant for three years you know this community, you're here every single day, you've been going to all these community meetings, you talk to people every day. Um, and it it was really quite intimidating. I mean, I, I can say I've worked on campaigns, my mother says in utero, so um, I've been working on campaigns all my life um, and um, loved being involved that way, but never really saw myself as somebody who would be in an elected position. Um, 
goodness, it's something else to go door to door and ask for people to vote for you as opposed to the name on the yard sign. Um, so all of that sort of changed. Um, I originally turned them down because I thought, wait, I'm just, I'm young, I'm single, I'm Jewish, um, I'm female. All these things that I had sort of seen um, sort of politics seemingly sort of um, chew up and spit out. And I thought this, I just didn't really want to do it until I kind of had a conversation with my parents and my friends and, you know, opportunities like that just don't come around twice. Um, and obviously it changed my life. Um, so what um, happened was um, in February of of 1997, uh, I got sworn in to fill out the remainder of his term and then had to, you know, basically still run the office and, and do the work and run for election. Um, and there were a number of people who kind of came out of the woodworks. He had been in office for over 20 years. So a lot of people wanted the position. Um, and we went through an entire election cycle and, um, but it was a lot of fun. Um, and I just, I, I put a good team of people around me who were able to kind of keep me motivated and kind of find the humor in some things, figure out how to take a lot of this stuff um, with a grain of salt, um, you know, and, and uh, I'm sure we'll get into this, but the whole idea of sort of where personal life and professional life, public life all sort of fit in were things I had to figure out how to manage. And um, um, so that that was sort of the beginning of things. Um, I'll say a couple things that I did do during that time too, as I reached out to other women who were in office um, or who had run for election. As I said, I'd worked on a lot of campaigns and they were mostly women. Um, and I just, I got a lot of, you know, little tips, big tips, ideas, um, and, and ways to kind of cope, um, and manage through running for election, um, during that time. Now, mind you, um, in, in 1997, cell phones were, were rare, <laughs> they did not have um, a phone capacity, uh, capability, um, things like Facebook and video and all of that um, were, were not reality then. So there's a lot in terms of kind of the evolution of all of that. Um, but so it, it really was, it was different in the way that campaigning worked was just a, a little bit different is that Everything we relied a lot on the U.S. Post, a lot on door to door. I think I knocked on every single door in the um, in the district um, at least once, many times twice. Um, I represented about twenty five thousand people, so it was a pretty um, substantial district and a, a larger population than Cleveland has now. Um, but that that was the big piece of the work and kind of how I, I got started. And, um, um, and really, again, it, it, it changed my life. Oh, that's really, you brought up so many different interesting pieces here. Um, let's see one thing I'd love to um, uh, dive into a little bit is so it's interesting. So you were working for the city council person before running for office and 
in that time, you mentioned that you didn't really see yourself for a, a number of different reasons as kind of the person to run for the position. Um, and you felt that way while you were working in the city council office. Is that right? Like still yeah. at that point, you, you saw yourself working in the government, but not necessarily being the elected official. Correct. Yes. Yes. And I so did. how did that like, I mean, that's something that I think we've probably both heard from a lot of people. They, they can't really like picture themselves as the person in that position. Um, they can imagine themselves working for someone in that position. How did you, how did that, and it, you mentioned you, you know, you sort of turned down the offer to fill the vacated seat the first time. Do you remember how you sort of like thought through that? How did you go from not seeing yourself in that position to saying like, yes, you know, I can, you know, I can do this. Well, I think the thing that was the, the most significant was that, um, I wasn't the ultimate decision maker. And when you're, when you're in this kind of a position, when you're in the elected office position, you make a decision and you have to take responsibility for it. And at that time, it just felt intimidating. It felt like I, you know, again, I sort of thought I'm, I'm, I'm in my twenties. I haven't had this kind of experience. What happens if I make the wrong decision? And that there were things like that that just seemed to hold me back until I realized, and again, I was kind of talking to others and especially other women who, who you need, right? You need a support network. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lot of friends were saying, oh, you can do it. You make decisions for everybody all day. You know, you make decisions for your family. You've been the decision maker as, um, you know, one of five siblings your entire life. What's different about this? Um, but it, it took a minute to realize, you know, I see people trying and perhaps not always being successful. And that's, that's a big part of the learning curve too. And I weren't necessarily people who were in their twenties. These are, you know, <laughs> adults who are, are, are making decisions as best they can with the information they have in that moment. And, um, and really what I started to see is that, what was more important is that my, maybe my voice, my, my, well, short lived experience um, could be a contributing factor towards providing some diversity there um, on the city council. Um, I was the youngest person when I, when I did say yes, and I got sworn in, I was the youngest person by about 20 years. Um, And there were some people who were, almost 50 years older than I was on the council, actually multiple people in their seventies. So it was, I I just kind of kept thinking of what was more on the positive as to what, what was, you know, what, what the deficits were. Um, It's kind of like when you're looking for a job, it's, it's much easier to say what you don't want as opposed to what you do want. (laughs) Um, And that's not helpful. So um, it really was just believing in yourself. And I think that's one of the things, I mean, we both went to Hampshire college mm-hmm. um, and that's a big thing of what kind of Hampshire instills in you is do you have to believe in yourself that you can finish that div three project <laughs> right. um, on your own sometimes, but you've got to do it. And it's not about going to class and taking an exam. It's about how you think and what you can produce and the body of work that you've produced and so that's kind of how and what I pulled from to make that determination. And 
then said, you know, what the hell? Um, and, and, and did it. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting, and I'm gl- I'm glad you mentioned Hampshire in that way too, because it is something I think that one of the things, and we had talked about this a, a, a little while recently, but you know, I mean, in our uh, education system in in general, you know, instilling in people the confidence and sort of the ability with skills to be able to really think about long term goals and even really intimidating long term goals. I mean, I would argue that to some degree that the sort of deficit in our you know, broader ability to do that prevents us from making progress in really important policy areas because as individuals and as sort of a society, as a, as a, as a government even, you know, we're not really able to say, okay, well, this thing is gonna happen many years from now. It's this huge abstract problem. How do we break it into pieces? How do we wrap our heads around the individual chunks to actually get us there? But you know, that's one of the nice things about Hampshire is this open-ended curriculum that really puts all the responsibility on you. You have to be self-sufficient. You have to be independent. You have to find your motivation from within because, uh, you know, there's not really anybody else to provide that for you. And it seems like that, you know, that we can, we we see the effects of that in how we govern, you know, it's short-term, it's reactionary. Um, And do you think that there are, I mean, so government, you can sort of see government, you know, on a large scale functioning, functioning that way. And there's plenty of examples of places where we're making better progress in that. But do you think that deters uh, certain types of people from wanting to kind of get involved in all of this? Like they sort of see how it happens. They see the kind of lack of long term strategic planning. And it's more of the sort of r- jumping to whatever is happening next. Like, are there people out there who would want to be involved, you think, but don't get involved because they don't see it as the right, you know, the right place for them? Well, it's a lot of really good questions in there. I think um, what it's the sort of totality of the job um, and a lot of the job that we don't see which is the bulk of the work. What we do end up seeing are the pieces that perhaps are a little bit more intimidating, right? The truly running for office, the whole idea of seeing your name on a yard sign, a a billboard, a television ad, or what have you. Um, That that's, you know, that, that is, it's weird. And, um, and you gotta get past that. You know, I mean, I, I, as I was saying, I, um, did, I, I ran or worked on a lot of campaigns and it took me a moment to think, well, if I'm working on these campaigns, what am I, what am I supporting? Who am I supporting? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the values of that individual or that levy or that, you know, ballot initiative that propelled me to get involved in volunteer time to phone bank or what have you. Um, And so I think what is important in, in all of this is to look at what are what are the assets? What are the values? What are the, the, the reasons for being involved? What are we trying to um, create as a society? What, what's interesting to you? What do you want to, um, what do you want to get your hands dirty on? Um, what kind of issues are important? Um, I think what 
tends to turn me off is when people get involved because they don't like somebody else, but or, or opposed to somebody else. But it's sort of that same thing. Then what are you for? What are you standing for? Help me get behind you. You know, help help me understand what you're going to do for maybe my street, my community, my neighborhood, my city, my state, what have you. Um, but to get involved, to actually then take that step to, to be involved um, and to run for office um, is so important. Um, and it's so important to know that this is not a, um, uh, it's not a demeaning job. Um, it, it, we need to return more of the respect to the position. I think we've had our fair share of, um, of elected officials um, who have, um, you know, been corrupt, done some really illicit things, um, um, have ha um, conducted themselves in ways that are um, really inappropriate and um, not saying that this doesn't happen in any other industry. It's just there seems to be a little bit more ownership in this because they are public and they're public officials. And so um, there's a feeling that we have more access to them and more ownership of them as they are an extension of us in some sort of body politic. Um, but unless we have good people running, um, we, you know, our choices then become more limited. And um, I think that's one of the things hopefully we can talk a little bit more about because we really need to have more people to run. We need to have people take that, um, take that plunge and, and, and put themselves out there and, and really help change the world because that can happen. Agreed. Agreed. And uh, again, you brought up so many interesting points here. Um, one thing I'd love to follow up on a little bit is you sort of mentioned, and I think this is, this is such, such a good, um, such a good point is that if people are thinking about running or getting involved in any sort of way um, with not even just government, but really any, anything that they're thinking about, if it's all framed in, well, I don't like what X person group side party is doing, that is going to make it really difficult. I mean, if you try to strategically plan from that as your starting point, right? It's going to be really hard to actually create something because you are sort of defaulting yourself unintentionally into a position of responding to whatever someone else is doing. And mm -hmm. I think what one of the values maybe that I don't think I had quite put as fine of a point on, you know, from all of the self-driven work at a place like Hampshire is that you have to sort, it sort of forces you to define the narrative, the scope, and, and 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 actually like lay out what your own vision is. And that's something that probably a lot of people would agree. They don't feel a lot of that from a lot of the people who do run for office is it's a lot of sort of, um, I would argue is a lot of kind of virtue signaling from different sides say, well, I believe in these things. And we're part of the same group. And so if you believe in those things, let's just do this, or you believe this side is wrong, but actually laying out a practical plan to solve an issue that's really important to you is a, is a whole other level to this. And so mm -hmm. when you, when you were, when you were getting involved in all of these things and you were running and were there things that were really driving you, were there things that you wanted to see changed um, reasons why running for city council was something that at a certain point, like kind of a switch flipped and you were like, okay, I can see this happening, you know, what were you hoping was going to come from that? 
Well, I, I, so um, different things at different times. Mm-hmm. So the first time um, was really about trying to empower the residents and empower the neighborhood and giving them um, a, a, an outlet to sort of speak their mind, talk about what their their issues were, and to be able to um, bring resources to them, um, whether that was, you know, a, a vacant house or, I mean, the, at a very, very local level, things like that are really important, right? Um, um, this was the, the time that I was there was sort of the beginning of um, predatory lending. So we were starting to see people who had no idea what they were signing, but people were going literally knocking on doors saying, here, sign on this, we'll give you this small loan to help fix that gutter and, you know, that, that, that window up there. Hmm. And then, you know, they learned that they had just literally given away the, their entire, um, um, net worth. Um, so there were a lot of things that you started to learn and understand as you got involved in the community of what was going on and what you wanted to be a part of, um, and realizing some of the injustices that were happening and people being preyed upon. Um, I'm not saying this doesn't happen in more affluent communities, but certainly community defines, right? Different areas define what your what your issues actually are. Um, the second time I ran, um, the um, um, I was really immersed in issues of HIV prevention, a lot of public health issues around lead poisoning um, and homelessness. And the community that I represented wasn't necessarily interested in those issues, but mm. these were bigger issues to me. These were citywide, region-wide, um, had tremendous amount of impact on um, and policies, on um, the allocation of federal resources, et cetera. And so was um, what I faced with that were different kind of, of challenges because A, um, certainly, the whole definition of a term is that, you know, your, your job perhaps <laughs> is guaranteed for that duration of time, right. right? So two years, four years, whatever it is, six years, mine was four years. Um, so, you know, that's thinking about if you're going to run for reelection, then you're, you're really kind of condensing everything into even shorter period of time because you got to put time into running for can- election, reelection, which ends up taking up a huge amount of time. So, you know, it's, it's the, the thinking of, of, um, of electeds often are kind of within those timeframes. Um, and oftentimes as well as if you need votes, it's very difficult to convince your constituency to support you when your thinking is much bigger, broader than that, perhaps geographic, um, 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 kind of political jurisdiction. So how do you think about homelessness, right? How do you talk about that on a policy level um, when you're one of 21 different wards in a city or whatever the number Mm -hmm. is, right? Um, And homelessness is something that requires really long-term strategic thinking. It's not something that is solved within um, that period of time. Um, And if it's HIV and it people don't think that it impacts them, um, 
for whatever reason, they, they might not find that those issues are issues that are germane to their lives. And so why, why support that when they really want perhaps you to represent the, or, or deal with the issue of, you know, a bad house or, um, you know, a, a street that needs repair. Again, I'm talking much more on a very local level, but this is sort of where things where things start. Um, and it's important, I think, too. Um, um, I hear from people who want to run for something that's um, much larger in stature, like Congress. And I'm all for it. I mean, you know, go for it. But I think that it's really important to have that experience of of running for office, of being in office at a local level to really understand how really local issues are, what people reach out to local officials for, um, and how to start putting an agenda together um, of things that really are important to a community. Um, and, and, and again, thinking perhaps hopefully beyond, again, that geographic jurisdiction, that time frame, um, and thinking big and, and having much bigger goals, um, having ideas that you're willing to lose for so that you're really willing to fight for something. I think that's really important as well. Yeah, that's, that, that's such a good uh, point too. I mean, you know, it, it's easy, I think, for some people to sort of get into the kind of uh, conveyor belt of politics traditionally, um, where you're, the strategic planning isn't around the policies that you're working on, but it's about what positions you're going to hold into the future. And mm -hmm. that people seem to be great at planning those things out. Um, but like, let's take that and what, what's the real purpose for doing this? And, you know, and I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think, you know, there's been a handful of people over the years that I've tried to talk out of running for Congress and say, what about mayor? What about city council where you live? The issues that you're talking about, like, you know, a Congress has got these two year terms. You're basically raising money, you know, half more than half of your time for a lot of them is just go, doing fundraising activities for their next election, you know, on a city council. I mean, four years is a big difference than two years. Oh, yeah. um, and that a lot of the issues that people think are only able to be addressed at the federal level are actually issues that local, especially on the city level, that cities can get very involved in and you might have a limited, you know, you're not affecting hundreds of millions of people at the same time, but also the odds that you're going to get it done at that level are so low versus having a, the, you know, a higher chance of affecting that same change in that area, but maybe a smaller group of people, which I think is also nice because then you get to see things change and it's sort of, I don't know, that's sort of motivating to kind of, you know, help you continue on that, on that track. Right. Well, and you have to build a track record, you have to build a base, right. um, you have to build narrative of what you're, you're, you're doing and kind of get, just get acclimated to what, what that actually means. Um, it's, it is quite something to really be in the position and understand really what that is. It's um, what it means to have that, you know, the proverbial microphone in your face to explain the, the reason for a vote or what, what your position is in a debate, um, how to engage um, community, how to galvanize, like really what, what, how people are heard, right? I mean, it's, um, we've had these structures of how communities are heard for 
centuries. And what right. we what we're learning is that we really haven't heard from everyone. We have mm. heard from a select group who right. have the privilege of access. Um, and we make a lot of assumptions about communities um, who have historically not been empowered. And that has, I mean, you know, what, what does that mean in terms of progress and, um, um, and, and really how we've, we've, we, we need to do much better. And I think with that is, so I think there's so much more power that needs to happen on a local level um, and, and empowerment, right, of, of communities and people um, to be part of what needs to happen in our in our communities and really taking back what public service, whether that is in in public office, right, running for public office, working in public, uh, you know, in, in public sector and government sector, um, and even volunteering for it. So you aren't just coming out once every election cycle to make some phone calls, but really being a part of what needs to be part of a much larger dialogue. And I think that's one of the things that people don't realize often is that there's so many ways to be involved in almost every community in the U.S. Now, in some communities, you might get pushback trying to be involved, although that would be very important to note, right? If you're living in a town and you try to go to the meetings and they're, you know, yeah. you know, but like there's so many opportunities there on all of these different issues. And that can be a great way to sort of explore this a little bit. Um, oh, Yeah. That's something that basically every local government really, I mean, every government entity, right, regardless of party, policy, anything else in, you know, a sort of a meta policy is how are those policies uh, discussed? How are priorities identified? Uh, you know, people, you know, I think most people don't really think about government budgeting as being particularly interesting or even um, relevant other than like the final number. But like you and I both know, I mean, the priorities of the government are built into that budget. Um, mm -hmm. And if there are communities that aren't participating in that process, whether because they're not getting involved or because they're being excluded, the priorities that are going to be enshrined in that budget and what the government is going to be able to allocate resources to do or not do is, is going to be completely dependent on what it believes its priorities are. Exactly. Yep. Um, now, one of the things you mentioned too, so some of the public health um, issues that you were interested in, um, you know, ties into some of the um, some of the things that have been um, that, that I, I know a number of people, including myself, have noticed in dealing with um, uh, COVID-19 over the last year. So I had some issues as a municipal uh, manager um, and doing emergency emer emergency management work and municipal management work um, that it was really difficult sometimes to get health data from other government agencies. Um, and we were talking about this a little before, but like the, um, you know, that uh, uh, HIPAA uh, was sort of thrown around as a, it seemed like a sort of catch all, you know, justification for one government entity not sharing data with another government entity. My understanding of the, you know, the, the early, the impetus for HIPAA was a lot around um, problems that resulted from not having that protection during some of the peaks of the HIV and AIDS epidemic, where people's personal health information was being used in ways that were very inappropriate, very damaging to them. And there is a sort of, you know, we're very good at pendulum shifts, I think, policy-wise right. in this country. Right. And we sort of yeah. put this framework down that protected against 
or attempted to protect against that. But, you know, we were, you know, I was having issues, uh, you know, in the very beginning, I mean, actually probably almost exactly this time. So we're in mid-March right now, almost exactly this time, maybe a few weeks later last year, I couldn't get information from public health authorities, whether we had any positive test cases in our community. They wouldn't release, with no name information, no demographic information. Uh, I think we were interested in age, um, but they would, at the beginning, we were refused that information, whether we even had positive cases. Now, a year later, I think we can all look at that and say, well, that's, that was obviously going to change at some point. Um, but HIPAA itself, I mean, so, so balancing, how do we, you know, is this something that you've kind of come into contact with? How do we balance, you know, it, individual privacy, protecting people's health information with creating an environment that makes it easier for governments, you know, at different levels. I feel like there's, you know, so many action movies where you have like different federal agencies fighting over something, jurisdiction about something. But we do that. That's not a law enforcement culture. That's a government culture. Um, and, you know, are, are there ways that we can balance, you know, individual privacy protection with public health with the, the value of sharing information for public health purposes, like what do you kind of think about all that? What, what's been your engagement with that? Well, I think that um, what sharing data is sort of indicative of just the, the archaic system of government trying to um, kind of protect its own in, a, in an era when data is, necessary to to survive to thrive to do any work to you know to function um and so historically it it, it was HIPAA but it was also everything else I mean it, it was your the public records request process in government is you know notoriously slow right. and there are many federal cases about it because right the government was reluctant to give up Loopholes any of that information and, yeah. and i'm sure there's plenty of reasons why i'm sure there are plenty of stories some of which i've heard and some of which are just absolutely ludicrous um but i get it um i'll share a story of um so i ran the um the health department here for um, the first eight months or so of, of COVID. And um, we had our first case on um, March 14th of 2000. We had first two cases and um, an individual who was one of our first cases needed to um, be transported to the hospital. Now, EMS had already gone through all their training and kind of knew what to do um, if, somebody COVID positive had actually uh, needed transport. And we had done a lot of the emergency preparedness and um, health departments here locally. We had worked on a process, a document. And so anybody who had tested positive, the health department reached out to immediately, you know, and started doing the um, case investigation, contact tracing. But we also gave them all this information of what to do if um, if you needed medical um, care and you need to be transported to the hospital. So what that meant was this is the first one. So I think three ambulances showed up at this poor individual's home. He lived um, alone. So there were a number of other things that needed to happen. But as a, as a result of that, the next day um, in the 
daily recaps. I think that the city's public service put out, they do a daily email of all of the public safety items of interest, you know, mm -hmm. so if a house burns down, or, you know, issues that are, well, this guy's address, and they also include the address and right. the cat numbers and all that. So his name, his address, everything is, is in there, how long it took them to get him from the house to the um, to the ambulance where they took him because um, they also timed themselves of how long it took to put on all the PPE, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and no one thought to not put that in this public document. Now, right. certainly it could be a document that doesn't go out to the public. They say that it's not a public facing document, but it's emailed to, I don't know, a hundred people. Anything could happen, right? right. <laughs> and so I happened to glance at it. You know, I was getting at that point about a gig of email a day. So, you know, the, the, the ability to actually look at emails was, was very limited at that time. But I just remember glancing at it and seeing this and immediately kind of calling all these people and putting this thing out like, you know, SOS, stop, do not publicize this. And this was a whole, it was a big learning um, exercise for everybody involved um, because of what it meant to actually then expose the fact that this individual was COVID positive. Right. He also had some other um, comorbidities that were included in there um, hmm. because he disclosed it and, you know, they were just typing away. Right. So I think with, with, not necessarily the intent of HIPAA, but one of the things about HIPAA is the whole idea of that pause of should this information be made public, right? Right. right. And what are you going to use it for? Right, right. Um, so that that really started all of us on, um, a, you know, we had very short period of time to think this through, but what is this actually going to look like? So now, you know, police, EMS, fire, anybody who goes out to a home, they wanted to make sure that they knew whose houses, who, who had, who had tested positive so that everyone could be protected. And at that time, it really wasn't yet the philosophy of, you know, just presume everyone is positive. And so, um, we had to figure out how this information was shared. Um, and so we required everybody who was going to look at this data, because um, it ended up being actually loaded into the CAD data, which is the police um, uh, or public safety um, database, you know, so if they, you ring one, two, three, four Main Street, you know, if that is a, where a, a COVID positive is, that would also be relayed to the um, um, the public safety officers um, or whomever is deployed to that home. Right. Uh, but we had to make sure that all those people were were also trained in this to make sure that that information is kept confidential, that they there wouldn't be, um, uh, or we could really limit how far that information went. Um, but I'll tell you, um, spending all this time at the city um, before um, my first time when I was on elected office and then um, having worked there um, recently as well, data is um, something that we have a lot of, yeah. but we just really, it's, it's, it's so new to share it 
for perhaps fear that it is um, a, a way of um, demonstrating value worth you know, exposing yourself to perhaps some expose of some, who knows. Um, But it truly is an area in government that um, makes those of us inside sometimes really frustrated because we want the community to know, not necessarily at a level of where somebody who's a COVID positive is, but we want to know, you know, um, how prevalent perhaps, um, let's use COVID, right, continue with this, um, how prevalent that is in their zip code, um, in their census block. Um, But we have to make sure that we're also protecting the individual, which is challenging when the numbers are low and then, um, you know, challenging when there's um, any way that they could be targeted and they were targeted. People were targeted, right? Early on, there was a lot of, and, you know, we're seeing things now in different ways that people are targeted. Um, But what we also knew is we needed to figure out a good way to provide as much data as possible to the community to use for their own for their own benefit um, and for their own use. Um, and so um, we were sort of grateful for the um, um, Bloomberg's um, School of Public Health at um, Johns Hopkins. We sort of looked at their display, their dashboard that they put out, um, and you know, here we, we did something, you know, very, very soon thereafter um, to make sure that we could put it at a, um, a zip code level um, and provide data in terms of race, ethnicity, age. Um, and um, at the time, um, initially, right, this was either from travelers or this was community spread before it just all became community spread. Right. Um, so they're trying to put as much of that kind of stuff out. Um, but there is a lot of reluctance. I think these are just a lot of old systems, um, old structures, old infrastructures um, where um, perhaps something that you know, data might be misused, used if it's put out there. Um, And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, battles back and forth about that. But I think with the, uh, with open source and with so many, um, you know, what the future is, which is all about technology um, and, and data, right? So that we can make decisions about what needs to be done in communities we need to be much more open about sharing data, um, sharing the right kind of data that doesn't put people at risk. Right, right. And, and I think, you know, part of what I take from all of that is that they're, you know, like with a lot of things, you know, it's not a one or the other side here, right? We don't want to do it or not do it, but we've got to be nuanced and really think about what the goals are so that we can design, uh, you know, a new infrastructure that works the right way. Um, yeah. And that that you know that that's hard to do because we're we're so we're so binary in thinking about these things. Um, but also, it's interesting too because I mean, government. You know, I think you know if, if we you know if we were to throw out the term you know big data, what's the first thing you think of? People are going to think of Google or Facebook or Twitter. But really, it's government. It's just that a lot of the records is I mean, even still in in, in most of the country, they're just in paper in file cabinets. So we don't really think about them being leveraged for any particular thing. Though there have been some incredibly fascinating examples of, you know, in New York City, they used uh, data, you know, basically pulling data from 
any any department that that had electronic data to help prioritize where they would send their fire prevention um, inspectors. And so that, you know, they, they can only get to a few percent of the units that they actually have to inspect. Which ones do they inspect? And they managed to sort that list basically in a way that allowed them to, you know, do what was deemed to be the highest priority. And so landlords who missed tax payments, for example, you know, was one of the indicators that there was a higher likelihood there might be a fire issue there too. And they were able to do a lot with that and, you know, massively improve how those services get delivered. And, but for government, you know, they haven't really had to think about that because, you know, in the past, so you put the record in a file cabinet, you get a public records request, you pull it out, you, you know, you highlight, you redact out the things that you need to, and then you, you know, you, you copy the thing and send it to somebody. But when data is stored in non-machine readable formats, it's a lot easier to protect privacy. But now, I mean, you th- think about, you know, how many times, how many times do police officers on the scene of an accident send over, uh, you know, a driver's license number to have something checked, you know, by the dispatcher or, you know, the address of the location. I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff, if you have a police scanner, uh, you know, most of you, you can find out a lot about what's happening, you know, with emergencies and especially in EMS when the ambulance is getting there, you can hear the requests to the dispatcher for additional resource. I mean, there's a lot, but it's all, you know, it's in some towns and cities, you can pull those radio channels online, but there's no transcript. There's no spreadsheets of that information. And I think it's hard for people to kind of think about that. Like, okay, if we're taking this thing that existed over a radio, an analog radio system that you have to buy a piece of equipment to listen to, and it's not recorded or stored anywhere, but now we're taking that and putting it on a website where it's going to live permanently, that there's a higher level of sort of, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's sort of, there's more that the government needs to do to protect that data when you put it in that kind of a format. Um, well, I think Alex too is um, technology costs money um, and um, collecting, processing, analyzing, spitting out um, data in any way, shape or form requires money and infrastructure right. and um and investments for a longer term. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a difficult concept sometimes in government because you're spending money now for something that is, is not an immediate thing and it might not right, necessarily right. be something that, you know, fixes a pothole or, you know, um, um, you know, completes a blighted block. Um, so, there's lots of things that are, are challenges with all of that. Um, and it's, it is a, it's, it, it's quite something to sort of rethink. And this is again, why, why we need people to run for office, why we need creative types to run for office. We need people who don't think like a, you know, perhaps not just poli sci or, you know, maybe history people. Um, We need people from all sectors to really be involved in this kind of communal conversation of why this stuff is so important, why it matters and why investing in, in that kind of infrastructure, in technology, and in data um, matters. I mean, in Ohio, the disease reporting system that right now is collecting information on every single COVID case and every reportable disease case, so that as well, it's over 20 years old. 
It's over 20 years old and it is not capable of running the types of reports that right now would be so incredibly beneficial. So you got a lot of people, you're investing now in others who are trying to now pull, transfer, you know, using other antiquated systems and other other systems to try to generate the kind of pure data, but not the ability to do the kind of analytics that really need to happen to really provide locals the tools they need to um, to really work on this this um, in a, in another way. We sort of salivated some of the communities who have. Um, much more updated um, disease reporting systems, but even, you know, things have changed, right? I mean, you can't just have male, female as the only options in terms of sex. You can't just have black and white as the only options for race. Um, You know, we've got so many others and so much um, that we need to capture to be able to have a much better picture. But if it's, if it's, back in the thinking of 20 years ago, that's all we were really perhaps even thinking about Um, or the people who were designing it because we weren't listening to the community and we weren't really paying attention to the community um, of what else needs to happen, right? Um, And so that is all part of, I think, why um, we're going back to our same theme is that we need more people to be um, be involved in this process and and bring their ideas and and just their energy and new new thoughts to how how government can really serve and and always question um, not necessarily accuse or fault um, um, how it is currently or maybe in the past, but more of like what do we want our government to be? What do we want our representation? to be? Where are we going for? Like, what kind of society are we? Do we really care about our people? Um, and if so, then then government needs to follow that and become that, as opposed to more punitive and, um, and, and looking for reasons to accuse, as opposed to being there to really, um, again, empower, make it better, um, and really work on fundamental issues that are, are, are harming people. It's so easy to slip into that sort of mindset. It seems like everything, excuse me, everything around us is sort of allowing us to get angry at something else, to point out fault elsewhere, um, and, uh, you know, we're constantly being distracted with new information that may or may not be relevant to what we're, any one of us are doing. And the space, I mean, even just from the perspective of your own, one's own mind, the space that we have, it's so hard to create a buffer around you to think about the future, to say, well, okay, this thing is really frustrating me, you know, but what is the solution? What are the different ways you know, can we look out to see who else has done it this way? You know, that's always a problem in government, I think, is sort of reinventing the wheel a little bit. And that we've actually have a lot of the same challenges in a lot of different states and a lot of different communities. Um, but it's the sort of isolationist or protectionist mindset um, that is, uh, you know, that it makes it easy for us to kind of want to double down on what we already believe. Um, and, you know, this is a whole can of worms, but maybe we'll just see if we can peek it open for a second. But it seems like this is in part related to, um, you know, sort of uh, a place where we're at mental health wise, 
uh, in a lot of the Western world, but especially in the United States, I think where um, we're not really thinking about how our brains and minds work in a way that is ultimately helping support us produce our best outcomes, whatever they might be in our personal lives, in our professional lives, in our communities, whatever, wherever it is. Um, and that seems like such an early starting point. I mean, if people are constantly falling into traps of getting angry at other people, like we should investigate that dynamic. Why is that happening? Why does it seem to be increasing? You know, what are the, what are the dynamics? What are the reasons why we have groups that are kind of, you know, are, are arguing in ways that are, you know, more tribal, less collective? You know, what are the, what, what can we do about that? And, you know, from the public health perspective, I, I guess I'm just curious if you have, you know, any kind of reflections or thoughts on, you know, I think we saw this change a little bit over the last year, how we are allowed to talk about culturally mental health a little bit. Everybody's sort of feeling burned out. Everybody's feeling a little more burdened. What do you see is like um, in the public health community, the role of addressing mental health? You know, are people working on that? You know, do we have kind of a light at the end of the tunnel? Can we move forward to something that maybe sets us up better to be able to do all these other things better? Well, <laughs> um, of the many, 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 many things that COVID exposed is truly um, the, the, the need for the destigmatization of mental health, behavioral health, and people who just need help. Um, and, um, and there's, you know, there's a whole array of what, what falls under all of that, but, you know, the injustices that people have been sort of forced to live with due to policy, federal, local, state policies for generations, right? Um, we're seeing a lot of um, communities calling on um, and declaring racism as a public health crisis and what comes with all of that and the emotional, um, mental, physical toll that um, um, that racism and that um, um, right injustices have really caused in communities so so critical and how are we moving towards reparations and repairing that and then and as a big part of that is uh, mental behavioral health I mean how people have really coped um, and I think that this has given us um, at least a little bit more permission to speak about it as an issue that isn't something to hide, that isn't solved with a pill, that is a lifelong, um, it's a lifelong, generation-long um, um, issue. But it's, it's, you know, public health wasn't really all that much talked about prior to about a year ago. I mean, we might have ebbed and flowed in public health. Um, I'm not sure people knew what a health department did right, prior right, to a year right. ago, and perhaps there's still who don't know what they do. Um, um, the thing that you used to, I, I never really liked this saying, but I understood from kind of my peers in public health is public health is, um, public health saved your life today. You just didn't know it. Hmm. Um, well, 
you need to know it. <laughs> you need to know what public health did. Um, and one of the things that public health does is it realizes what's not working and tries to um, get in there, figure that out, look at you know the multitude of inputs to try to um, address that and make that better. Um, and that that's a big piece of what public health does. And mental health, behavioral health is, and I'm using that interchangeably. I don't know right yet. <laughs> I don't think that we've sort of settled on one particular um, vernacular, but it's it's such a critical component to to success. Um, I mean, we look at these children who have been home or who have not been able to access technology um, and thus school. We're looking at families, how many women have been taken out of the workplace because they need to manage so much and how much that really plays upon um, the rest of your health. Um, there's infrastructure health, right, of just kind of what, what, what this is causing and what this will have as impact in the long term and how necessary it is to invest in this. Um, but it falls into that sphere of public health that these are oftentimes things that aren't resolved in a generation, right. um, but require and, and call out for um incredible investments and not necessarily always just money, right? But just investments all around how our built environment is put together. Um, what we're thinking about in terms of, you know, just clean air, clean water, like the whole idea of, you know, I think it still shocks people that there are large communities in the United States that can't turn on a faucet and right. drink the water out of it um, or take a shower, right? Or a whole bunch of things like that. I mean, that all has impact on, um, on mental health and on physical health and um, physiological health. And, and this all needs to be, um, it needs to be in the forefront. Does this sort of, again, this is what we're thinking about in terms of our society. And this is where, if we're not investing in that, what kind of society are we? And who's making those decisions of where those dollars are going instead? Um, and I, I think, again, that's sort of where more voices who can really bring that to the forefront are so necessary. Yeah, I mean, it almost sounds like to some degree that, you know, pu uh, public health and mental, I mean, it's almost a meta issue, right? Because you think about, I mean, so we know that, uh, um, you know, uh, stress causes all sorts of really problematic chronic medical conditions, right? It seems like we, we're learning more and more about that, which just keeps stressing me out every time I learn about it. I have to figure out how to interrupt that cycle. But there are, we, but we, kn we know that, you know, for example, poverty it is extremely stressful to be in poverty. And yet the way that the, the machinations of government work, I mean, you know, my own experience of uh, being on unemployment for some period of time during COVID, I mean, interacting with that system is very stressful. Um, and it's not really set up. And you think about people that are really struggling um, and are worried about uh, where money for groceries is coming from and where money for rent is coming from. And God forbid, if someone has a medical condition or gets COVID or something, what's going to happen then? You've got kids at home trying to learn, you've got all these things happening. And yeah. yet engaging with the government 
often in a lot of places adds another layer of stress on top of that instead of kind of saying, okay, it's like this human-centered design approach. How do we make this work for the people? You know, can we improve people's stress levels when they are getting unemployment? Can we use that touch point with someone who's at a challenging point in their life to actually impart some de-stress onto that person? And that's not something I think we hear a ton about, um, you know, on a broad level. And it's such an interesting opportunity to tune government to really be better for people in the long run. Right. Yeah, no, it's a system of, you know, of again, punishing people for situation that they may have had absolutely right. no, um, you know, they, they didn't cause it. Um, right. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's just, um, and the, the benefit cliff for people who, um, you know, if they just surpass a certain amount of income, all of their other support services are, are cut off. Mm. I mean, you don't just kind of instantaneously have everything figured out um, um, and have everything in place, you know, that moment. Um, it's just, it's, it, it, and if you listen to the debates and you, um, I mean, it's kind of interesting when I um, did my Div 3 project on um, the origins of public housing and um, it really were the suffragists who were really pushing against many of them, their spouses who were legislators. <laughs> These are policymakers and telling them that this, you know, you need to um, guarantee housing, right? Like the whole idea of not having that foundation. If you're scared right. that you're going to be kicked out, you know, in three days and you have children and somebody is sick and, you know, it's, it, it was just sort of set up to penalize people who needed assistance as opposed to giving them the resources and support that they might need to get to a place where they um, are stable and then they can move forward. I mean, you know, it's, it's right now these work requirements for some public benefits I mean, reading the um, reading the debates around it, this has been around for you know a long, long time. And again, it's coming from people who are sort of penalizing people who are in this situation. The government, again, it's like, what what is our purpose for being there? What kind of a society do we want to be? Um, and when we're seeing that homeless rates are just going up through the roof and unemployment, right? And so much, and there's going to be so much of a need for recovery um, and the dichotomy of what's going on in this country. The people who are doing well are doing well exponentially, right? And and, and yet every Thursday there is, there's, they're, they're surpassing almost Every Thursday, they surpass the week before number of people who come in for food at the food bank. Um, um, uh, you know, they, they come in line to uh, receive food. So it's just an amazing thing. Um, and, and where we really need to, again, have other voices to make sure that we are, are bringing to light what are so necessary um, in terms of where and who we want to be as a society and and how we want to help our people. Uh, I think that's a really great uh, spot to sort of um, uh, leave off here. It's such a good message for people that are thinking about these things is not to accept the systems and institutions as they are, but that it's really incumbent on people who aren't involved currently, because I think we all sort of say, 
well, if left to their own devices, it's not really working. So we need new people in. And for those new people, what do you think that future looks like? What are the issues um, that you could imagine yourself leading on changing? What kind of society do we want to live in? What are the values built into that? And if you want us, and if you imagine that, and it's different than where it seems like it's going, we've got to figure out a way to connect those dots. And you know, and, and a great way to do that is getting involved in local government and thinking about running for office and you know, exploring all of that. Even get involved on the precinct level, right, you know, right. like precinct Join level. Join some boards, committees. Best point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The best place to be involved. Um, I always think it's interesting to find out how people got interested, right? You know, if um, some some children in kindergarten want to be president, and um, now I love that we're encouraging young girls and um um, people of color to say that that's within reach. Um, right. I love that. I think that that's so amazing. Um, but, you know, people who can organize, uh, you know, a great uh, you know, potluck or fundraiser or some, something, I mean, you've you got the skills. Um, it, 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 and then it's not a cookie cutter. You don't have to look like the people who've always been there. You don't have to think like the people who've always been there. Um, and certainly we don't want that. Right, um, exactly. That, that, that's what's netted us kind of, you know, to a large degree where we are now. Um, and I think that this is one way to really make sure people start um, recognizing that, you know, at least this country um, doesn't, is starting to really change and, and for the better. I mean, it's, it's, it's a place that um, we need to make sure that we are, um, again, encouraging so much more of a diversity of voices, of people, of um, perspectives. Um, and, um, and that's so necessary. It's, it's, that's the kind of world I want to live in. Same here. And, and hopefully, hopefully we can help people see that if the things, them wanting to do things differently or not looking like the way things are supposed to, that's not a weakness. It's a strength. Um, and, uh, and hopefully, hopefully more and more people can sort of feel empowered by that. Um, is there anything that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to touch on? Is there anything you wanted to say, um, you know, as we sort of, um, uh, leave off here. I, I, I just love this conversation to sort of um, kind of greases the wheels a little bit more <laughs> of, of like, oh, right, right, right. And, I, you know, obviously lots of stories of like, oh, I could have shared this. Um, but I, I think that um, if there is anything I can sort of say is, um, you know, what excuse I hear the most for people who, who don't want to get involved are the fear that their personal life becomes so public. Right. I hear that a lot, right? I mean, I think that that seems to be the one biggest stumbling block to people, especially women who tell me that they, um, you know, they're much more comfortable in a role, um, um, you know, as a working on a campaign, perhaps, or, or not, or not necessarily even getting involved. And I understand, I appreciate that. But I think that it's, it's interesting to me too. Um, I am not a Facebook person, poster, it's just not been, um, uh, I, I just don't, but I see it, right? And my, my family's on and a lot of my friends and they post so much personal stuff. I mean, it's, right, it's, right. it's out there, right? And you can control a lot of that. Um, I don't know if you've posted anything <laughs> in any 
any one of those platforms, be prepared for that to come back sooner or later. So just be smart about all of that. Um, but I, you know, there is, there is, it's up to you. Um, and I think that um, it's still so important and to be involved and we do need people to be in these positions. Um, it's just so critical else we have a very stagnant sort of older voice that has won these um, positions for, for you know, our history. And we really need to encourage um, others to step up and do that. And so I, I, I do invite you to really um, perhaps take that fear and concern, pick it apart a little bit, kind of understand really and truly if it's just an excuse or if it's, or if it's valid. Um, but to really put, you know, a couple people together, it, there are a lot of people are out there trying to help mentor and support um, and, and get involved and, and, and be part of, of the change. It's so necessary. Um, and especially if you're really thinking about what a future can look like, what, what we're working towards as opposed to working against. Um, so um, I just, I just want to put that kind of plug out there that um, um, I was there. I, I had absolutely no interest in doing it. Um, I get it. Um, but having done it, I'm, I'm really glad that I had that opportunity. I know that there were a lot of things that um, um, I was able to really change in the community that had been represented by somebody for again, over 20 some years. Um, we, we did a lot together as a community. I really, I, I appreciate so much um, having relationships with um, so many individuals who care so passionate about their block that I never would have met um, otherwise. Wow. Uh, and, and really able to perhaps um, help people in that, um, in that process as well. And then get to work on things that were really, really fascinating that I, I maybe never even knew were um, uh, issues, but they pivoted, they were just a pivot from what I really wanted to bring to the community. So um, go for it, do it. <laughs> It's so important. Um, and you might not win the first time. That's okay. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. is okay. Um, and most likely will be the case. Um, so right. figure it out and try it again and, um, um, and reach out to others who you think might be um, good ones for it as well. Oh, that's a lot of really great advice there. Um, so uh, that's that's excellent. I mean, thank you so much for coming on and sharing uh, some of those experiences um, and thoughts about this process. Uh, I think this is great. We'll have to schedule some additional interviews. I know that there's so many more things here that we could, uh, we'll do part two, three, four, five. Um, <laughs> um, but really, again, really appreciate the time uh, sharing some of these experiences with us. Uh, I think it's going to be really helpful um, for folks that are thinking through this and uh, wish you luck on everything that you're working on. And yeah, thanks again for for coming on, the, coming on the show. Thanks, Alex. Appreciate the opportunity. If you enjoyed this interview and discussion, please share, like, and subscribe. And then consider checking out all of the other discussions. They're all posted on YouTube and online at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. You may also want to check out all of the podcast episodes. 
You can find Rethinking with Alex Torpy on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, Google, and Stitcher, as well as online at rethinkingwithalextorpy.com. If you like what you heard, please also consider liking and sharing this content with a friend. And don't hesitate to get in touch with me by email or social. Thanks again for listening.